perhaps we've just wasted our story. We've kept it quiet. We don't tell anyone. We've kept it hidden. I want to encourage you to share the good news of what Christ has done in your life with someone, maybe even this week, with someone who may not have heard. You're listening to Galatians, a sermon series preached in the fall of 2019 at Shoreline Church. For more audio and theological content, visit thisisshoreline.com. So what is the best proof that Christianity is true? I'm a huge fan of what are called, or what is called apologetics. And um, apologetics has a lot less to do with apologizing, saying sorry, and everything to do with uh, bringing an apologia, bringing a defense, a reasoned argument for the faith. And I think the best kind of apologetics are what are called presuppositional apologetics. But if we were to gather a group of apologists, uh, men like Ravi Zacharias, uh, men like C.S. Lewis, uh, groups like Summit Ministries, and there's, there's lots of them out there. Uh, often, some of the big arguments that apologists love to use are kind of classified as what I call the big five, the big five arguments to defend Christianity. And so I just want to walk through these a little bit to set up our text this morning. Uh, these five arguments, we'll put them on the screen, are used by many theologians and apologists to defend the faith. So we have what's called the cosmological argument. This is saying that the existence of the universe itself demonstrates that God exists. The argument is this, whatever begins to exist has a cause. Well, the universe began to exist, so the universe has a cause, and that proves that God is the primary cause. There's, of course, the, what's called the teleological argument. The teleological argument is what we call the argument from design. The argument is that the purposeful design of the universe argues for a designer. No one looks at an iPhone and says, wow, all of those parts just, just came together randomly. No, we say that about Androids. <clears throat> but when we look at a watch, it's a big argument, we see the fine-tuning, we see the creation of that. And if it's designed, that implies a designer, the teleological argument. There's, of course, the ontological argument produced by Anselm. And this argues that the very concept of God demands that there is an actual existent God. Follow me for a minute. If God's existence is possible, then God must exist. Well, God's existence is possible. Therefore, God does exist. Let me show you on the screen. Maybe you, maybe you were fortunate enough to not take philosophy in university. <laughs> you were very fortunate indeed, but they would argue this. Think of the greatest concept ever. Now imagine that it doesn't exist. Not so great now, is it? So if what you're thinking of really uh, is really so great, then it must exist. Okay, that's kind of the ontological argument. Maybe your eyes are crossing at this moment. There is the moral argument, the moral argument by Immanuel Kant that argues that if there are any real objectively valid moral values, then there must be an absolute from which they are derived. So this would argue that if God does not exist, then objective moral values and duties do not exist. Well, objective moral values do exist, therefore God exists. And finally, there's what's called the transcendental argument. Again, produced by Kant, and if you can't understand him, I understand. Um, but this asserts that all of our abilities to think and reason require the existence of God. So if God exists, then there must be logic. Well, logic exists, therefore God exists. Now, as convincing or confusing as all of these arguments are, Listen, this morning you don't have to spell ontological to be able to defend the faith. Many of you here this morning are into those, and that's good. And, and yes and amen, we need to study, we need to learn, we need to grow. We need to use our minds. But one of the best evidences of our faith is not only the empty tomb, but the reality of how the gospel has impacted your life and has made you new. And I would say it this way, in a postmodern culture... People try to manipulate words and change meanings and debate you down rabbit trails and away from the resurrection and away from God. And so I'm absolutely for apologetics. But one thing that postmoderns cannot do is argue against your changed life. 
In other words, one of the greatest evidences for the gospel is the lives that have been transformed because of it. Rather than being afraid of relativism, which many of us don't want to go there, which is this idea of, well, there is no absolute truth, uh, the church can actually sabotage the culture's idea of relativism, their obsession with subjective truth, and say, well, that's true for you, that's true for me. And instead of arguing truth, we can say, well, this is what Christ has done in my life. And no one can say, no, he didn't. No, Christ didn't do that. That's not true. They can't argue with what Christ has done in your life. And so you and I stand before an unbelieving world as an apologetic argument ourselves. Here's what Paul said to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 5. He said, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We use that phrase when someone dies. The old, they've passed away. Well, that's our old life prior to Christ. It's passed away and the new has come. Verse 18, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Listen, this morning, if anyone is in Christ, you're a new creation. You're not just a remade one. You're not just a reformed one. Okay, this is not redeeming an old shirt at a thrift store or restoring an old classic car to make it more new. It's a restorative work, to be sure, and it's a redemptive work indeed, but it's a new work. It's brand new, a changed life, the old and the new. And many of us, all of us, have a story of where we were someone who is old and now someone who is new. We have a story, we call it our testimony. Some of us have a testimony that sounds something like this. Well, I was raised in the church or I was raised on the mission field and I was in church. I was present in church as much as the Yankees are in the postseason. I was just there all the time. Um... And, and maybe you would say, you know, I don't really see old new. I kind of just was always in the church. And, and I would say um, that that's great, that that's a great testimony. And we'll see a little bit of that this morning. Others of us were as lost as a freshman at a frat party. And we heard Jesus' name a lot, uh, but it was only when dad was doing construction and it was used as a cuss word, okay? So even if you're here today and you do not yet have a right relationship with Jesus, you are still a part of the work of God and his story. So before we zoom in and say, this is my story, we have to understand there's a greater narrative, there's a grander story that God is doing in the world. And until eternity, our testimonies, our story, God's story is still being written. Well, what was Paul the Apostle's testimony? Because as we titled this series in Galatians, Plunder Legalism, no one knew legalism better than Paul, the writer of the book of Galatians. Last week, we kicked off this series, and we saw how the churches gathered in the region of Galatia, a region about the size of southwest Florida, or Florida itself, had entertained some false teaching. Specifically, they had entertained the notion that you were saved by grace through faith in Jesus plus circumcision. So faith in Christ wasn't enough. You had to add something to the finished work of Christ. What Christ did on the cross was not enough. So you had to keep certain aspects of the law to be made right with him. But Paul said, as we learned last week, anyone who preaches that gospel should be condemned. They should be cursed. They should be damned. And so today we're going to see that Paul was not intimidated by the fear of man. Uh, and he was not unfamiliar with the ways of Judaism. It's not like he just kind of came to Christ with no reference, with no background. Christ had intervened in his life, had turned his world upside down, or more accurately, turned it right side up, and had made him new. So today, if you're taking note, and you've got those Galatian scripture journals, I uh, hope you do. Those are $2. Those are awesome. Uh, but here's how we're going to outline this passage. And this passage kind of involves Paul's story. Notice here, we're going to look at verses 10 through 12 and look at Paul, the servant of Christ, where he's at currently. Then he's going to go back a little bit and tell us about Paul, the former Pharisee, verses 13 and 14. And finally, we will see Paul, the preacher to the Gentiles, verses 15 through 24. So that's where we're going today. Look at verse 10 with me. Paul says, he's asking a few questions to set up his story. He says, for am I now seeking the approval of man or am I seeking the approval of God? 
Uh, Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. The rest of the chapter is that backstory. In fact, we even go into chapter 2 a little bit. Spoiler alert for next week. We see a little bit of Paul's continued uh, development of this thought. He received it through a revelation. Now notice that he says, I can't do both. I can't seek to please man and also seek to please God. I can't be a servant of Christ and a servant of man. Jesus said it this way, you can't serve two masters. You're either going to love the one and despise the other, or you're going to be faithful to the one and be faithless to the other. You can't be seeking to please man and still serve Christ effectively. Paul said this to the Thessalonians on the screen, 1 Thessalonians 2, 3, and 4. He said, for our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, notice this, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Paul was entrusted with the gospel, but he wasn't out to win man's approval, so he wouldn't waffle in his convictions the way that Pontius Pilate did at Jesus' trial. In fact, Paul didn't, you could say, he didn't cave in like a cheap mattress when he saw compromise in the church. He called it out gracefully, but he called it out. And we'll see more of that next week when he actually calls Peter out, the apostle Peter, publicly for his hypocrisy. Notice in verse 11, Paul says, the gospel is not something that man made up. So this is not a group of guys who were bored one afternoon and came up with this new religious idea. Let's just start something fresh, something new. No, the coming Messiah was promised all throughout the Old Testament. This wasn't some story or myth that man made up. And notice that Paul says, I didn't receive it from any man. I wasn't taught it. I actually received it directly by revelation from Jesus Christ. Three times in this section, he asserts, this wasn't from someone. This wasn't taught by someone. Uh, Notice that Paul didn't preach because someone trained him or someone paid him. No, he was commissioned by Jesus Christ himself. And in verse 12, would you take a minute and, and circle or highlight the word revelation? He says, I received it by revelation through a revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the word unveil, revelation, unveil. Um, and it typically means a clear manifestation or an unveiling. Apparently, this happened on the road to Damascus. Jesus himself unveiled the gospel and made it known to Paul. I like what Martin Luther says about this. Paul, uh, Martin Luther says, Paul did not receive instruction from Ananias. It's not like he went to Ananias and learned about the Christian faith. Paul had already been called, enlightened, and taught by Christ in the road. His contact with Ananias was merely a testimonial to the fact that Paul had been called by Christ to preach the gospel. Okay, that's important. Paul wasn't seeking out the Christian faith. Like, tell me more. I want to learn more about this faith. No, he's actually on his way to destroy it. So let's learn more about Paul's past as we look at this second section, Paul the former Pharisee. Notice verse 13 with me. He says, for you have heard, this was well known, you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Real quick before we dive into this, circle that word violently. Okay, that word is what we get the English word hyperbole from. So it's the same word. What does that mean? Hyperbole means an extreme exaggeration. It means intensely or to an extraordinary degree. If you use hyperbole, it means just just overwhelming exaggeration. So Paul wasn't just disagreeing with Christianity. He was doing everything in his authority, his power, and his influence to utterly destroy Christianity. But, But what does Paul mean when he says, my former life? My former life. Look at verse 14. He says, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Zealous for the traditions. Now, the word for traditions there, it's understood that that's the kind of um, section of uh, the oral tradition for the Jews, like the written Old Testament. The Jews believed that that was given to Moses. And so we call this the Talmud. And uh, often it would result in formalism and folklore instead of faith. 
So the Jews would hold up the Talmud alongside the Torah and say, well, we have the scriptures, but we also have our interpretation and our traditions. And they'd hold them up together as equal. And so whenever you speak with a religious Jew, you always have to cut through what is Torah and what is Talmud. And often it's blurry. And so remember Jesus in Mark 7 condemned that kind of tradition that was held up with scripture as authoritative when he said this in Mark 7. Jesus said, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Notice that their worship is vanity. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. They hold up the Talmud as equal with the Torah. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men, which is by default what we always do. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. The Catholic Church, likewise, would hold up the decree of the magisterium, the tradition of man, as equal to Scripture. We know this in October, we celebrate Reformation Day. And so the, the reformers said, no, 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 no. Scripture is the highest authority. We hold the sola scriptura. So if we hold up a tradition and we hold up the word of God, the tradition will always submit to the scriptures. It must submit to the scriptures. But see, Paul was steeped in the religious traditions of the Jews. And what happens is traditions in front of the scripture and it, it becomes higher than scripture and so then you lose scripture and you hold just to the tradition. Well, he says, I was steeped in this and I was extremely zealous for them. But he says, you know all about my former way of life. You know all about it. Maybe you're here today and you don't know the former way of life of Paul. So if you're using your scripture journals, it may be hard to turn to another passage of scripture. But if you have your phone or you have your Bibles, turn with me really quick to the book of Philippians. I just want to spend a second on this idea. Philippians chapter 3. And get an idea of Paul's former way of life. We're going to spend a few minutes on this point so we can get a, a true understanding of where this legalistic mindset in the region of Galatia came from, and, it, and Paul was exposed to it as well. So look at this on the screen. Some of you are like, wait a minute, I already turned there. Well, that's fine. Philippians chapter three, starting in verse four. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law. What's the word there? Blameless, blameless. If you have a way to take notes, jot these down. We're going to look at seven items on Paul's resume. Seven items that Paul said, this is, this is who I am. This was my past from this section in Philippians chapter 3. First of all, he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. So the first thing I want you to jot down is that, that Paul had a godly heritage, Okay. Leviticus 12.3 commands parents to have their sons circumcised on the eighth day. So Paul's parents were obedient to the law of God, at least in this area. So he had a godly heritage, circumcised on the eighth day. He says, I have more confidence. Secondly, I'm of the people of Israel. So he was born into his religious identity. He didn't come to it later in life. He was born into it. Born a Jew. He wasn't a proselyte. So Paul could trace his lineage back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was an heir of God's covenant to Israel. Thirdly, uh, Paul says, I was of the tribe of Benjamin. So you could say it this way. He was part of an elite group. The tribe of Benjamin, of course, was Jacob's beloved son. Benjamin as a tribe was distinguished by the fact that their first king, Saul, came out of Benjamin. It was the tribe that aligned itself with faithful Judah when Israel divided into two nations. And it was also the tribe that had the city of Jerusalem within its boundaries, according to Judges 121. So this is a great tribe to be affiliated with. Now, up to this point, Paul had no control over that. He's just kind of pointing out his heritage. And for those of us who have that testimony where we grew up in church, we grew up with godly influence, that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. That's not, that's not a liability. Uh, I was raised in a Christian home. Uh, my, some of you know my testimony. My parents were Christian hippies, so that made every evening interesting. We had several, I, I realized years later, I grew up kind of in a commune, and I didn't realize that. We had flannel sheets separating families. We did bonfires in the backyard. Uh, I think everything I wore was made out of hemp, and it was just a wonderful, crazy peace fest. So 
Um, it, was, it was fun. But my parents um, were bringing me up in that. And so Paul could say that his parents had brought him up in at least a uh, religious Jewish family. But notice the next one, number four. He said, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. So you could say it this way. He stood out even among his people. He was not in a Greco-Roman occupation trying to hide his Jewishness and not let people know. No, he was well-known and respected even among the other Jews. Number five, he says, I was, according to the law, a Pharisee. So he is a strict follower of his religion, this ultra-conservative group that attempted to uphold the law perfectly. We could call them the back-to-the-Bible group. He wasn't one of those nominal half-hearted followers who just go to church on Christmas and Easter. (laughs) He was there often. Uh, Not only was he a Pharisee, but number six, uh, he says, I was a persecutor. So he was zealous and his beliefs alienated others. He was so zealous about his faith, he was willing to persecute people for it. Paul wasn't afraid to make enemies for what he believed. Well, finally, number eight, he says, I was actually legalistically blameless. So we could say his position with God was based on his performance. Paul thought in his mind, hey, because I'm such a good person, I'd actually make heaven a better place. And you know what? I even floss. And so he is in this camp thinking, I've done all of these great things. Now listen, this morning, if you compare your self-righteousness to Paul's righteousness, then none of us can stand up to this religious effort. Jesus said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Paul is the human standard for self-righteous justification by works. Do you understand that, church? Paul is the standard of a man who comes from the line of Adam, who's not born again by the Spirit, who's not Jesus. Paul's the standard for self-righteous justification by works. And every religion believes in self-righteous justification by works, by the way. Every religion. Every religion says there's plight in the world and you escape the plight in the world by doing something. So who's the savior when you're the one doing the saving? It's you, you're the savior. Hindus believe that you can reach nirvana, the state of perfection, through continually doing trials of meditation and good works. That's what Hindus believe. They escape the plight in the world through good works, through uh, these different things. Muslims believe uh, Allah must be appeased through right living, through religious duties, and for extreme Islamists, perhaps dying for the cause of spreading Islam through jihad. Uh, New spirituality groups, a bunch of them, believe that heaven is achieved right here on earth by, by achieving positive thinking and unleashing internal energy or having good karma. Agnostics and those who are a part of SBNR, spiritual but not religious, they would say, well, I'm not sure if there's a God, but if there is, he probably wants you to weigh your good deeds versus your bad deeds, and you better hope and pray you did good enough or enough good in your life. So just be a good person, help the poor, don't cheat on your taxes or your wife, be sincere and kind, and your kindness is what will save you. But see, ultimately, the idea behind religion, self-righteous religion, is that your performance earns your escape. Just do enough and you're good. How many times have you sat on an airplane next to someone and you begin to talk to them and they say, well, you know, I think God will know like that I'm good enough to go to heaven. Well, how do you know what good, how good is good enough? And so Paul, I would argue, is the human standard for self-righteous works-based salvation. But my question is, did Paul need saving? Could we just leave it here? Could we just close and go, yep, there it is. Paul did it. He achieved it. Well, Timothy Keller says this, self-salvation through good works may produce a great deal of moral behavior in your life, but inside you're miserable. You're always comparing yourself to other people, and you're never sure that you're being good enough. You cannot, therefore, deal with your hideousness and self-absorption through the moral law by trying to be a good person through an act of the will. You need a complete transformation of the very motives of your heart. You see, Christianity, distinct from all other world religions, speaks of a sovereign, holy, covenant-keeping God of love who sent his son to live a pleasing life of good works and then die a brutal criminal's death for others to absorb the wrath of God so that we could, as we just sang, receive a pardon and forgiveness for our rebellion. And you cannot earn or deserve that. You have to receive it by repentance and faith. 
Paul could have said, yep, yeah, I was, and I am the best. I'm the gold standard for good works. But what does he say there in Philippians? Look at the next verse, Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. If you don't have your Bible, it's on the screen. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Notice this, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Did you guys catch that old English word rubbish? Did you see that? We don't use that word today. We don't say, hey, could you throw out the rubbish? The, the rubbish collection is happening tomorrow. We don't say that word. Uh, it sounds like trash, but it's the Victorian way of saying dung. All right? We've cleaned it up a little bit at church. and we, Oh, rubbish. No, but uh, we're real here at Shoreline. It's dung. Okay, it's dung. Uh, Paul says, my former way of life, my good works to escape the plight in the world and be right with God, it's filthy waste and it's disgusting. It's despicable, self-righteous religion. God hates it. Paul hated it. I hate it. People, for some reason, love it. Timothy Keller goes on to say this. It is only when you see the desire to be your own Savior and Lord, lying beneath both your sins and your moral goodness, that you are on the verge of understanding the gospel and becoming a Christian indeed. When you realize that the antidote to being bad is not just being good, you're on the brink. If you follow through, it will change everything. How you relate to God, self, others, the world, your work, your sins, your virtue. It's called the new birth because it's so radical. You see, Paul had a past, a very sordid past. He was pitiful. He was religiously self-righteous. He thought through his moral goodness he could attain uh, holiness and righteousness. So what happened? What happened to him? How is there an old Paul and a new Paul? Well, let's see our third section. Go back to the book of Galatians chapter 1. And let's look at Paul, the preacher to the Gentiles. Verse 15, if you look in your Bibles, he just has the word but. But. Okay, for those of us who are in Christ, there is the old, the new. There's that intervention. Ephesians chapter 2 says, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love for us. See, there's a change from the old and the new. There's an intersection where God breaks in and changes the course of our life forever. He says in verse 15, But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. So if you want to understand this, Paul didn't sit down with Ananias or any church leaders to learn about Christianity. And he says, I did not immediately consult with anyone. But did you guys notice that there are four aspects of Paul's testimony right here that changed everything? And we glanced through it quickly, but look at these for a minute. Number one, Paul says that I was set apart. God set me apart before I was born. You could use the word holy. Holy means to be set apart. And notice that this is passive tense. He says, God set me apart. It was done to me. God was the initiator in my salvation. And this happened before Paul was born. In other words, he didn't start impressing God. God was like, man, this guy, Paul's amazing. I got to save him. Uh, no, this happened before he was born. Secondly, notice that he says, I was called by his grace. Again, passive tense. Called by his grace. Church, do we understand? Do we grasp the grace of God? And we've learned this before, but mercy is when we don't get what we do deserve. My kids often will ask for mercy. Dad, I know I messed up. Can I please have mercy? That's when we don't get what we do deserve. But grace is when we get what we don't deserve. And God in his grace called Paul. Uh, real quick, we don't have time to go deep dive into this, but just a, a little shallow dive. Um, did you guys know in the Bible that grace is called great? It's called sovereign. His grace is rich, exceeding, manifold, all-sufficient, all-abundant, and glorious. Might have to take a picture of that one and go read those references later. His grace is all of those things. Paul says, I was called by his grace. Grace, church, is the source of, notice this, it's the source of election, of the call of God, of our justification, our faith, our forgiveness of sins, our salvation, our consolation, and our hope. Grace is the source of these things. Charles Spurgeon 
said, grace is the free favor of God. It's the undeserved bounty of the ever-gracious creator against whom we've offended. The generous pardon, the infinite, spontaneous, loving kindness of the God who's been provoked and angered by our sin, but who, delighting in mercy and grieving to smite the creatures whom he has made, is ever ready to pass by transgression, iniquity, and sin, and to save his people from all the evil consequences of their guilt. We sing it this way, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. See, Paul wasn't called because of the works of Paul. He was called because of the grace of God. Someone needs to hear that today. We aren't called sons of God because of our works. We're called sons of God because of his grace, because of the work of Christ. This cannot be earned or deserved. It's freely given and it's freely received. Well, thirdly, notice that Paul says that he was given the revelation of the Son. Again, this is passive tense. Paul, notice, he wasn't given a list. Here's things you need to do. He was not given a bunch of things to accomplish. He was simply given the revelation of the Son. Christianity is simply the revelation of the Son. Jesus said in John 17, 3, this is eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. He said in 1 John, or it's said in 1 John 5, 12, he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. Jesus said in John 5, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. And so Paul could say, I was given a revelation of the Son. And then fourthly, notice that he was called to preach him among the Gentiles. This is a very specific call for Paul, but for all believers, we have a call to preach Christ to those who do not believe. Spurgeon said, if you don't feel compelled to reach others with the gospel, then it hasn't even reached you yet. (laughs) I like that. Uh, He says, I was called to preach him among the Gentiles. You want to circle that word Gentiles. That's the word ethnos or peoples. Peoples, not people, but peoples. Okay. And this is not merely unique to Paul. As Pastor Micah taught us a few weeks ago, the mission of reaching to the ends of the earth is still unfinished. And so that work of discipling the nations, all peoples, that work until every nation, tribe, and tongue has heard the good news of Christ is still unfinished. And so we continue, so to speak, uh, the ministry of Paul. So Paul says God did this work in him. He's the one that initiated. He's the one that was doing the work. But notice that he says, I didn't really have any Christian influencing me directly. This was all a work of the revelation of Christ. So look at verse 17. Then he says this, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and I returned again to Damascus. So Paul didn't go to consult in Jerusalem with the apostles. He left to Arabia, so into the wilderness. Um, We're not sure exactly how long that was. It says around three years. So we don't know if that was the full three years or during that span of three years he went. But he took some time to go into Arabia. I'm not going to show you pictures, but all of us think of the desert when we think of Arabia. So Paul spent some time. It's really interesting. The disciples of Jesus spent three years with him. Paul spent about three years. We don't know if it's exactly that, but... I think it's interesting, instead of a doctorate in divinity, Paul got a doctorate of the desert. (laughs) He went away to spend time understanding uh, the gospel. We know Moses spent many years in the wilderness before he led the children of Israel. John received the revelation while he was exiled on Patmos. And sometimes God will um, get us away in the desert before he truly uses us. But Arabia, when, when did Paul go to Arabia? Well, at that time, Arabia was most of the Sinai Peninsula. So we we just know at some point, maybe he's contemplating his new faith, maybe just getting alone. But somewhere within three years, verse 18 happens. He says, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. So Paul hung out with Cephas. That's the other name for Peter, and he hung out with James, one of the leaders of the Jerusalem church. Okay, this is not an official trip, just a personal one. And notice he was there about two weeks, about 15 days. 
So he's trying to emphasize he wasn't trained by the apostles. He was most likely growing in his relationship with them. So then he says in verse 21, Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. So at that time, Paul was not yet a household name within the church. Uh, Churches that are growing in Judea had no idea uh, what Christ had done in Paul until his testimony, his story started being told. And notice their response, verse 23 and 24. They were only hearing it said, here's the story, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And notice verse 24, and they glorified God because of me. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine just for a minute, a guy like Paul blaspheming and persecuting Christians and yet then becoming one? Uh, in the words of the Princess Bride, this is inconceivable. This is just inconceivable. <laughs> Verse 24, church, is an understatement. The one known for persecuting the church and trying to destroy the faith is now its biggest advocate. Remember, the early Christians were kind of like, hey, <laughs> we're not sure what to do with Paul. Is he a mole? Is he trying to trick us? Do we reveal that we're followers of Christ? Is he going to take us out? But now it's true. He's come to Christ. What a reason to give God glory. I think whenever someone controversial or known or famous comes to faith in Christ, it can kind of be exciting. It can kind of make the news uh, or it makes the Christian Facebook news. You know the difference, right? It doesn't make real news. It makes the the Facebook thread, like everyone shares it. Recently, I heard the news that uh, that Kanye West was saved. Uh, I'm not going to be overexcited about that. I'm going to kind of wait and see, and I'm cautiously optimistic, but there's some reason Uh, The pastor that's been speaking with them uh, is a solid pastor, and so there's some great reasons to prayerfully rejoice in that. But listen, even in the stories that aren't so headline-worthy, God is still glorified, right? He's always glorified when the gospel takes root in the life of his beloved children. Jesus said it this way in Luke 15, 7, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. See, church, the glory and joy of the Lord are never more present than in the transforming work of the gospel in the lives of people. And you and I can give glory to God for how he's worked in each one of our lives. The heavens declare God's glory for sure, and they do a remarkable job proclaiming his handiwork, but that pales in comparison to a life transformed by God's grace. We are told in Ephesians 2 that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. We are his creative expression. And nothing brings God more glory than the light of the gospel in the face of Christ. In fact, Paul said this to the Corinthians in chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians. He said, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves. We're not sharing our testimony about me. No, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, that creative work, he has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Did you catch that? The God who spoke creation with light coming out of darkness now shines in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory to others. So that means, like Paul, we are the light of the world. And we don't hide our lamp under a bushel. We put it on a stand, and it gives light to all who are around us. Jesus said, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. So like Paul, we're to let our light shine so the testimonies of his grace and kindness can be an act of glory to God as we look at our depravity and our darkness. People can say, that was the old, but here's the new. Now, church, I want to apply this passage in kind of three main points as we wrap up our time in this chapter. So if we're going to take some notes down, I want you to apply the text this way, three ways. Number one, uh, I want to encourage us to seek God's approval, not man's. Paul says, if I were trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So church, we need to seek God's approval, not man's. Now, I know that this is hard for many of us. Many of us promote man's opinion as the same or above God's, God's approval. Uh, we would be called man-pleasers when we do this. How do I know if I'm a man-pleaser? Well, there's a couple marks of being a man-pleaser. 
Uh, people who are man pleasers cannot say no when they're asked to do something. They say, okay. Uh, you avoid making decisions or giving your opinion. You might be a man pleaser. Uh, you're crushed when you learn someone doesn't like you. You resent others, but you're not sure why. The reason is you've been giving in to their opinion. You find yourself overwhelmed fulfilling someone else's expectations. So when you and I are concerned with pleasing man, rather than pleasing God, we make man sovereign. And thus all of our motivations, all of our decisions are birthed out of the fear of man, which is a snare, rather than the fear of God, which is the beginning of wisdom. Would that we had the boldness of Paul to stop trusting in man, to stop allowing the fear of man to carve out our decisions, but just to proclaim Christ and call out compromise when we see it. Some of us here today, we need to boldly deal with a problem person, and we'll learn more about that next week. And we let the approval of people keep us bound to their will. Or maybe we've just avoided conflict because we're afraid of people and we want them to like us. But we need to resolve today to repent and, and do what's right, to stop fearing man, to start trusting God. This is not a quote that I came up with, but I heard recently someone said, if, <clears throat> if you want people to like you, just quit your job and sell ice cream. <laughs> I like that. Because <laughs> everyone loves ice cream. Or sell donuts, okay? Just sell something that people like. G. Campbell Morgan said it this way. I love this quote. Are you going to be a popular preacher or a faithful messenger of God? Someone says, well, I can be both, right? No, because the message of the cross is not popular. It's countercultural. It's offensive. So, listen, we're not going to win our culture to Christ by letting the culture change us. Uh, we're not going to conquer this culture by letting the culture change the church. We're the church, and if the church is a boat, the world is the ocean. I, I like what Moody said. He said, we put the boat in the ocean, but we don't, we don't put the ocean in the boat. If we put the ocean in the boat, we sink. And we don't hide the boat in the harbor. We put it in the ocean. We let the sails down, and we let the wind blow where it will. So pleasing men will always prove to be a snare. We need to subordinate that to pleasing God. So seek God's approval in your life, not another person. Secondly, to apply this, uh, we need to acknowledge the sovereign hand of God in redeeming us from our sordid past. We need to acknowledge that God was good, that he's sovereign. So when people hear your story, is there something to glorify God about? Uh, I would argue that every unbeliever in Western culture, specifically in America, knows at least one Christian that they respect. And that's a big, bold statement, but I believe that that's true. Every believer in, or every person in North America could probably say, I know at least one Christian that they may respect. Now, would they tonight glorify God because of you, because of your testimony? Is your testimony worthy of being shared? Does it speak of your glory or God's glory? Maybe you're like, yeah, I don't have that much of a testimony. It's not that exciting. It's not that risque, like someone with a checkered past. It's just kind of ho-hum. You might say, well, how do I even share my testimony? Well, if we review how Paul laid it out in verses 13 and 14, this is actually a great framework for developing your testimony. I want everyone this week to think about this. So on the screen, let me show you these four ideas. Paul says that I was set apart before I was born. So the first question I would ask is, how is God working through your past? Paul says, I'm called by his grace. So how is God leading you to repentance and faith? Thirdly, Paul says, I was given the revelation of the son. So how did God or when did God reveal Jesus to you? When was that? And finally, he says, I'm called to preach him among the Gentiles. His life changed. How has your life changed since you came to Christ? I want all of us as a church, take a picture of that, jot those down, and this week, consider your testimony. Uh, from time to time, we have a testimony Sunday where we hear a story of God's grace in the life of one of our shoreliners. We've done that for a few months, and we want to continue to do that, uh, and we want to hear from more people. God was sovereignly at work in Paul's childhood and in his religious past and in drawing him to his son. How has God been sovereignly at work in your life? Maybe it was through a difficult experience, maybe through death, maybe misfortune. Maybe on the other side, you were fortunate enough to be raised in a godly home with great examples before you. But we can all acknowledge God's sovereign hand in redeeming us no matter what our past looks like. Maybe this week, as you consider those, you can reflect on what Christ has done in your life. 
and just simply thank him and praise him and enjoy his grace as you express his gra- your gratitude for his grace. But thirdly, do we enjoy his grace? Yes, but this has been a theme lately. We also extend his glory among the Gentiles. Paul was raised not merely to enjoy the grace of God for himself, but to proclaim his grace among the Gentiles. Listen, your testimony is not to show off how sinful you were, right? My grandfather used to say, your testimony begins with Christ. It begins with what Christ has done, not your past. Perhaps we've just wasted our story. We've kept it quiet. We don't tell anyone. We've kept it hidden. I want to encourage you to share the good news of what Christ has done in your life with someone, maybe even this week with someone who may not have heard of the cross. It can be daunting. It can be awkward to try to figure out what to say to an unbeliever. I've been in those situations. You're at dinner and you're like, how do we, let's witness to the waitress. What do we say to her? And we're trying to bring up something like, hey, can we get some more ketchup? And you need to catch up with God. It, it becomes cheesy. It becomes lame. And, and that, was, that was a lame joke because that's what it sounds like when we try to connect the gospel to someone that, it can be awkward. What do we even say? But I think, you know, being intimidated by those things, all of us can share our testimony. And unbelievers can't say, no, that's not true. God didn't do that. All they can say is, wow, cool, tell me more. I, I want to know more. We can enjoy the grace of God, but let's not forget to extend his glory and be preachers to all nations, to every people group. There are lost people in every people group, by the way. There's lost people. There's lostness everywhere. That's one of the things I learned this last month in Engage Global on that trip. There's lost people everywhere. So do we, yeah, we need to plant churches. But most people groups have already received the gospel. Most people groups have access to the Bible in their native tongue, in their heart language. Most people groups have a thriving church capable of successfully ministering the gospel to lost people in that people group. But there are over 7,000 unreached people groups with no believers, with no access to the gospel. Uh, And whenever we give missions money, less than 3% of that uh, gets to the resources where the work is still unfinished. And so through prayer and intentionality, my prayer is that we can change that in our generation. But we must be simply willing to tell the story. There was an anniversary of 100 years at the arrival of missionaries in Zaire. And I actually confirmed this story. I thought it was a fake story, but I confirmed it. A particular denomination. 100 year arrival anniversary of missionaries in Zaire. And Christians gathered in that anniversary to celebrate that part of Africa that was once called the Belgian Congo. And near the end of this celebration, a very old man stood up to give a a, kind of a a speech. And he said that he was going to die soon and he needed to tell the group something that no one had ever um, heard from that denomination. He explained that when the first missionaries came, his people didn't know whether to believe their message or not. And so they, as a tribe, devised a plan to secretly poison the missionaries and watch them die. And so one by one, children and adults became ill, and they died and were buried. And it was when the tribe saw how the Christians died, that's when they decided to believe their message. The missionaries never knew what was happening. They didn't know they were being poisoned, and they didn't know why they were dying. But their faithfulness to the Lord and to the gospel convinced the people that they ministered to that their message was true. Listen, as we live out the gospel, the world is watching how we live, how we suffer, how we die, how we rejoice, how we worship, what we worship. If Jesus is real, may they see our lives. May they glorify our Father in heaven who has called us by his grace. Amen. Let's bow our heads together, and we're going to stay seated as we close in song. I'm going to invite our worship team forward. As we sing the song, I want us to stay seated and and bow our heads. I'm going to pray a prayer from the book called Valley of Vision, and this prayer is called Requests. And as we consider what Christ has done, uh, actually, I'm going to read from the one that is called The Great Discovery. Wrong one. And as we close in this prayer, I want us to reflect on what Christ has done on our behalf. And so I'm going to pray this prayer. And you can just agree as your eyes are closed. Glorious God, I bless thee that I know thee. I once lived in the world, but was ignorant of its creator. 
was partaker of thy providences, but knew not the provider. I was blind while enjoying the sunlight. I was deaf to all things spiritual, with voices all around me. I understood many things, but I had no knowledge of thy ways. I saw the world, but did not see Jesus only. O oh, happy day, when in thy love's sovereignty thou didst look on me and call me by grace. Then did the dead heart begin to beat, the darkened eye glimmer with light, the dull ear catch thy echo, and I turned to thee and found thee, a God ready to hear, willing to save. Then did I find my heart at enmity to thee, vexing thy spirit. Then did I fall at thy feet and hear thee thunder, the soul that sinneth, it must die. But when grace made me to know thee and admire a God who hated sin, thy terrible justice held my will submissive. My thoughts were then as knives cutting my head. Then thou didst come to me in silken robes of love, and I saw thy son dying that I might live, and in that death I found my all. My soul doth sing at the remembrance of that peace. The gospel trump bought a sound unknown to me before that reached my heart. And I lived never to lose my hold on Christ or his hold on me. Grant that I may always weep to the praise of mercy found and tell to others as long as I live that thou art a sin-pardoning God, taking up the blasphemer and the ungodly and washing them from their deepest stain. Lord, that's our prayer this morning that we reflect on what you've done. We enjoy your grace today, but may we extend your glory to the ends of the earth. It's in Christ's name that we can pray this pastoral prayer of faith. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.